Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 2, where we are reading straight through uh, the book of Exodus. And last week we left off with Moses being born and now being raised by a daughter of the Egyptian Pharaoh. We've seen that the, um, the Hebrews have been enslaved by the Egyptians and the Egyptian Pharaoh had actually ordered for all the male Hebrew babies to be thrown into the Nile. Moses' mom did put him in the Nile, technically, <laughs> but in a basket so he wouldn't drown, which is what the uh, Pharaoh was really after. And God rescues Moses in particular through Pharaoh's daughter, who is now raising him as an Egyptian, even as a Hebrew. And so we pick up the story after he has grown up. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we hear your word read and proclaimed this morning. God, help us to hear with ears that you have created to hear your word. God, we pray that you would help us to understand with minds that you have created to think on these things. And God, we pray that you would help us to live your word in our lives with hearts that you have created to be in relationship with you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you most of all for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 2, 11 through 25 says, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their, their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters, Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Turning then to our New Testament reading, our gospel reading, that is, from Mark chapter 8, 
starting in verse 31 and going through the first verse of chapter 9. This immediately follows after Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter had answered, you are the Messiah. And after this, verse 31, says he he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we, um, as we approach our sermon text this morning, uh, we have to talk about, it's in the book of Revelation, we're going through this book, but we kind of have to talk about what this book is. So before we get into it too far, I just need to know, show of hands, how many of you all have ever uh, read a newspaper before? Is that most people here? Okay. These days, everything's, you know, weird and different. And the things you think people are going to know, they don't. And the things you think, you know, newspapers, how many of you have read a newspaper today? Anybody read a newspaper today? Maybe one? Anybody read a newspaper this week? Okay, a few more. All right. But as long as you've ever read a newspaper, that'll be helpful. Because you know in a newspaper, there are lots of different sections of the paper as to where they talk about which kinds of things, right? And if you are familiar with the layout of a newspaper, you kind of know when you're in each section what to expect as far as what kind of stories are going to be there. And so um, if, if we were to think of the book of Revelation as a, one of the sections of the newspaper, what section do you think it would be? Where do you think that would fit in the newspaper? Hmm. And really, I think the answer to this question will determine a lot of how it is that you read and understand the book of Revelation. So, for example, if you were to open the newspaper and you see in the kind of the section that's just dealing with things that have happened in kind of local news, Here's a local story for you, and you read about two animals that got into a fight over a flag, and they're like playing tug-of-war with it. You'd be like, what a weird week this has been, that something like that is happening in our community. On the other hand, if instead of uh, reading it there, if you just saw a picture of it as a political cartoon, and the animals were a donkey and an elephant, and they were playing tug-of-war with a flag— 
you wouldn't say, what a weird week this has been, would you? You would know immediately what that means because those are things that are, those are symbols that mean something in our culture. And I think the book of Revelation makes the most sense when comparing it to a newspaper as a political cartoon. The symbols are ones that are well known to the people that John would have originally been writing to. The meanings are powerful. It's the kind of thing where, you know, say a picture is worth a thousand words. And so he, he tells about a picture, but the picture that he gives is big and powerful. And we're going to see some of that this morning uh, in Revelation 1, 9 uh, through 20. And what we've seen so far is uh, John layering these things together. We talk about how he's layering in what he, this is what he sees and then how he communicates it. And uh, in what he sees and how he communicates it, he's layered together things that are um, involving the whole of the Old Testament and then the whole life and ministry and teaching and, and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then also overlaid on that is kind of the whole of the Roman Empire that they're currently living under the oppression of. And so when you have all these things together, it starts to line up and you see things um, more clearly. And it actually starts to reveal things, which is where the book of Revelation gets its name, is things are being revealed. And mainly what is being revealed is the victory of God in Jesus. Now, there's a lot else that's being revealed. And so you see the things of this world that... Uh, as we'll go forward, there are things in this world that look really big and scary. And it turns out, take off the mask, not really big and scary. It's like the end of every Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> you have this reveal. Okay, who's seen Scooby-Doo? I did not get enough reaction on that. <laughs> so some of you have. You know how that goes. The end of every episode, they take off the mask. Oh, it's just such so-and-so. We don't need to be afraid of that after all. And a lot of Revelation is like that, where you have this revealing, this unmasking of these things that people are you know, kind of terrified of and living in fear. And it's like, oh, you don't actually need to be afraid of that. Then there are other things that people think we shouldn't be afraid of. And it's like, actually, that, yeah, no, you, you should be afraid of that. And then there are things uh, that we see as, as beautiful. And you unmask that, and you find out that's actually ugly. Or there are things that we think of as ugly. You unmask it and find out it's actually beautiful. And there are all these turning the whole thing upside down with this uh, kind of revealing. And, um, and so the whole thing is sort of this, okay, how many of you have seen an MRI? <laughs> I'm just going to quiz everybody all morning long. You've seen an MRI, or at least the results of one, where there's, what's going on on the outside, but the doctor wants to see what's going on on your insides to be able to uh, diagnose or treat something you're dealing with. They put you in this machine that kind of scans all the way through slice by slice, and then they look back through and they can see, um, see what's going on in your insides. This is what uh, this book is doing for the whole world and for uh, all of our human hearts. And we're getting this kind of under the surface look at everything. And, uh, and so that gives us a much different perspective on the things that we are then uh, living through. And so, for example, 
We start with uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. John says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to come back to this. Let me just read the whole thing so you know where this is headed. It says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was, like, was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Pretty clear, right? Well, maybe not so much. There is, um, well, we'll get to that. As we said, I would come back to the uh, verse 9. When John begins this section, he talks about being the brother and the companion of those that he's sending this letter to. And he talks about the things that are ours in Jesus. And what is it that he says are the things that are ours in Jesus? This is verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Is that what we expected? That one of the things that, that is ours in Jesus is suffering? One of the things that is ours in Jesus is the kingdom? And one of the things that's ours in Jesus is patient endurance. How do these all go together? Well, if what we're understanding is that things may appear different than they are, then we may see that Jesus really is the king over a very real kingdom, even though uh, the Christians may be um, suffering under the hands of the Roman Empire. And so in the one sense, yes, there is a kingdom, a very real kingdom that they are a part of, and yet there's also very real suffering. Oftentimes suffering that is experienced because they are unwilling to bow to Caesar. But then there's also the patient endurance. We saw last week that Jesus was described as the faithful witness, and we talked about how there's this, there's always the 
two sides that we can um, be drawn away by. There's the, um, the persecution and the hardship that comes in our lives that makes us go, I don't know, is this worth it? Or then there's the temptation towards something you know, worldly, and we go, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's the better option. I'll just go that way. Is this, is this really worth it? And we see that Jesus is the faithful witness who, when things got hard, he stayed faithful. And when he was tempted, he stayed faithful. And it's this patient endurance. I had a professor in seminary who said that the word in Greek for the patient endurance, he said, I would burn this word on your brains had I the technology. (laughs) Because it is a word that shows up so many times throughout the New Testament, and we make so little about it these days. But that it's this patient endurance, this continuing to stay faithful, despite the hardships that come and despite the temptations that come, it's the following Jesus day in and day out, with that patient endurance. Anyone can start a marathon. (laughs) What makes a marathon difficult is the just continuing to put one foot in front of the other all the way to the end. Jesus did it. And now he says that those of us who are in Jesus We are part of this kingdom that he talked about, this kingdom of God. But that will also bring with it some suffering as it clashes with the kingdoms of this world. But we also have this patient endurance in Jesus as we continue to follow him. So John says, continuing, says he is, uh, On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet I don't know what that means. You may know what that means, a loud voice like a trumpet. Have you ever heard someone talk like a trumpet before? I have some guesses, but I don't really know. Uh, I don't know if it's really just about how loud it is, how loud a trumpet is, and it's just such a sudden blast of, ah, there's words, you know, that kind of thing, or if it actually has like the tonal quality of a trumpet. I don't know. But anyway, I suspect probably more the first. But I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Where's the voice coming from? Behind him. That's important. I heard a voice uh, behind me like uh, behind me a voice like a loud trumpet, which said, "Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches." And as we talked about last week, yes, these are particular churches, and we will talk more about those in the week to come. But there's seven of them on purpose, and this is representative of how the whole church, everywhere and always, needs to hear this message, which we'll see that in every letter to each of the churches, it ends by saying, uh, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, So in each particular one, it applies to everybody. So the voice had come from behind him. And then in verse 12, it says, so then I turned and looked. And what does he see when he turns and looks? I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Does that mean anything? Yes. Anybody know any any idea what that might mean? See seven golden lampstands? Again, if we're thinking in terms of political cartoon kind of thing, like things mean things. It's not just a lampstand and you go, oh, cool. There must have been a lampstand there. 
but it means something. Where else have we seen lampstands in the Bible? Hmm. Tabernacle, temple, right? When you go in, and God was very specific about how you were to build this particular lampstand and how many branches it to have. And this lampstand served multiple purposes, but one is it gave light to this inner uh, part of the tabernacle or the temple. And so it gives light to the space, but it also is representative in the way that it is construction, constructed of even that uh, tree of life all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so it is a way of uh, this kind of tree that is in the presence of God. And so as people are approaching the Holy of Holies, they come in, uh, into the presence of this, uh, this lampstand. Could anybody just approach, though? Who all got to go in where the lampstand is? Only the priest, right? And so the priest is the one who's tending to the lampstands. Like one of the things that God has them actually make specifically are wick trimmers. And you're reading in the Bible, and you get to this part about how they're supposed to make these wick trimmers, and you're like, does this matter? Does this, is this important? <laughs> Here's why it's important. <laughs> you go from, all the way from uh, Exodus to here before you finally figure out why this is important. The priests are the ones who are going in and trimming the wicks to keep the light going. And, and so they are uh, tending to the lampstand. More on that in a second. So you have a priest by the lampstand. What does John see? He turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. Not one. Seven. Hmm. We're going to keep on seeing the number seven throughout the book of Revelation. It shows up way more um, frequently in Revelation than it does throughout the whole rest of the Bible. And it, it is this uh, number that indicates wholeness or completeness. And so when we're looking at the seven lampstands, it doesn't just mean, oh, then there were there's seven of them, that's it. But it indicates this represents all the lampstands. And you go, what are the lampstands? How many temples are there? Good question. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. We should rec- recognize that phrase because it's the one that Jesus most commonly used about himself. Identifying himself as the one that we see in Daniel chapter 7, when there's this vision of all these rulers who are ruling over the people, but they're ruling over them like beasts who are only seeking to trample and devour. And then there's this one who shows up, and he is like a son of man. He is the one who is able to approach God and is given all authority and an eternal kingdom. And so when Jesus refers to himself as son of man, he means the son of man, as the uh, human who actually is the one who is the right ruler over the kingdom of God. And here, John sees one like a son of man who is dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, very similar to how the uh, priests would dress, and with a golden sash around his chest, but then... The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That's quite a description, isn't it? If you go back, and we're not going to take the time to do this right now, I wish we could. (laughs) In Daniel 7, 
Daniel 10, read those, and you're like, every description here is on purpose. Every part of this uh, description is pointing us uh, to where we can understand the meaning behind uh, these images. And that it's not just, this is what he looks like. Oh, neat, that's what he looks like. Take a picture. But when it describes him as having hair white as wool, and you go back to Daniel 7, you see this is how the ancient of days is described. This is God himself. And so in this uh, section, we have someone who is, uh, with all the power and authority of God himself, who is acting as the king over everything, who is also acting as a priest in the temple, tending to the lampstands. And we go, wait a second. There is someone who is God and man and priest and king. Sound familiar? (laughs) As uh, some people have put it, that when you get to the book of Revelation, it's not that we see new things in Revelation that we haven't seen in the rest of the New Testament. There's some of that, but not very much. Most of what we get in the New Testament or in Revelation is the same stuff we've seen through the rest of the New Testament. We just see it in a whole new way. And so here we have this description of Jesus in a way that, uh, that as these images kind of pile up, it just really drives home who he is. And he is uh, God, fully God, fully man, the one who is the... Uh, the true priest, the one who is the true king. And then, um, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This, again, uh, when we're talking about, you know, is this what Jesus actually looks like? Well, if so, he's going to have a hard time talking with a sword coming out of his mouth. On the other hand, if we're thinking in terms of like political cartoons, what might it mean for a sword to be coming out of his mouth? That image, what does that mean? And of course, Hebrews tells us that his word is sharper than a double-edged sword. Well, it makes sense for his word to be coming out of his mouth, right? But it's a word that is uh, sharper than a double-edged sword in the sense that it's not just Uh, used as a weapon, but even as a scalpel. Like this is a word that does uh, judgment, but it does right judgment. And his face was like the sun shining all its brilliance. And then when John's response is fantastic. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) Yeah, that rings true. Uh, Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Again, descriptions of Jesus that we've seen other places, but here it's put all together for us. And he says, And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. And then he tells us, this is fantastic. This is I say there's like a political cartoon that's also like, if you remember back in the book of Genesis when Joseph is in um, prison in Egypt and Pharaoh has these dreams 
and they're weird dreams, and nobody can interpret them. But they know there's a, uh, there is an interpretation, right? And so um, he's sending to all his wise men. Nobody knows how to interpret them. And he goes to Joseph, who says, I, have, I can't do it either, but God can. He can give us the interpretation. And so then you hear this dream that Pharaoh has, and it's super weird because it's all about, um, like, cows that are eating other cows, but it's like the skinny cows are eating the fat cows, and they stay skinny. And then you've got these heads of grain, and, like, the, the shriveled up ones are, like, swallowing up and eating the healthy ones. You're like, what in the world is this? And, of course, it doesn't mean that, well, this is what you should expect, Pharaoh, that, you know, in a couple of weeks, there are going to be some skinny cows, and they're going to eat up the fat cows. No, it, it means something. And, uh, and yet, he has no idea what it means. Those are uh, images that didn't necessarily mean anything to him. And in the same way, uh, oh, but then God gives Joseph the interpretation, says, this is what it is. Well, here, I don't know. What are the lampstands supposed to represent? What is it that the stars are supposed to represent? And... Jesus tells John, hey, by the way, here's what these are. It says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we are going to talk more about all of that in weeks to come. But here's the point. Is, uh, as I mentioned, all the way back in Exodus, we see this wick trimmer thing. And we're like, well, is that important? Here's why it's important. What we see here is Jesus, who is walking among the lampstands, and he says that the lampstands are what? The churches, right? The lampstands are churches. might be important to note at this point that when he's talking about the church, anytime the New Testament is talking about a church, it's not referring to a building. It's referring to a people. And so when it talks about the church in whatever town, it is the Christians in that community. That's the church. And now Jesus is saying that he's walking among these lampstands, which are the churches. As though he is indicating that he is the priest who is tending to each of the churches. That he knows what's going on. And when we go through each letter that he then sends to each church in every single one he uses the phrase i know and then continues to say something that he knows about them i know that this is what you're going through or i know that this is what you're doing sometimes it's a great thing sometimes that's not such a great thing but that is the point here when we see this wick trimmer business in uh, exodus this is uh, the priests are tending to the lampstands, making sure that the light doesn't go out. And when you see Jesus uh, walking among the lampstands in this vision that John has, this is what this is about, that Jesus is the one who is tending to his church, wherever that church might be. He's tending to his church. He knows what is going on with his people. Question, is that good news or bad news that Jesus knows what's going on with his people? Depends, doesn't it? It depends. Jesus has several parables that he tells about uh, how it will be for people when he returns and he either 
People have been doing what they're supposed to or not. The response is very different, depending. And we'll see that as we get into some of these letters, as we have some of the churches who are experiencing the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are theirs in Jesus. And there are others who are kind of using the name of Jesus, but are living just like the rest of the world. They have compromised uh, their faith so as to not experience the suffering. So they're not experiencing the kingdom. And they have given up on their patient endurance. And so Jesus has good news for some of the churches and not so good news for others. And as we go through each of these, we will be reflecting on that and kind of seeing how how the shoe fits for us even today. But for today, remember that last week we talked about, you know, is it worth it to continue to follow Jesus? And the answer was a resounding yes. And today, the reminder is, uh, through all these colorful images, that the one who is God and man and priest and king, the one who was dead and is now alive forever and ever, he is tending to his church. He knows what is going on with his people. And if, uh, if we are living in opposition to him and his kingdom, that should be terrifying, that he knows. On the other hand, if we are um, seeking, seeking to follow him in everything, and we are experiencing suffering, because of that, it should be a great comfort to know that he knows what is going on. This takes us all the way back to what we read this morning in Exodus, where the people were in uh, slavery in Egypt, being oppressed by the Egyptians, and they're crying out to God, and he hears them, and he cares about them. He knows what they're going through. And just because he hasn't acted yet doesn't mean he's not going to act. And as we continue through Exodus, we see that he does act decisively. And the book of Revelation has a lot of overlap with what happens in Exodus as far as removing uh, the people from uh, the oppression of the empire, the empires of this world, and bringing them out to be the people of God. We'll see more on that as we continue as well. For now, just like we saw last week, that following Jesus is worth it. See today that we don't do that alone. He knows uh, his church. He knows his people. And he is involved and he is concerned. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.